Open uh, to 1 John chapter 5. Open your copy of God's Word. We continue our study of this book. We looked at the first five verses of this chapter last week. This morning, looking at verses 6 through 12 of 1 John chapter 5. Hear now God's Word. There is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God's greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. When I was in high school and received Christ as my Lord and Savior, I uh, was introduced to a, to a fellow high school student named Stan. And Stan witnessed all day long, every day. He was always talking about Jesus. And so I was impressed, always given a testimony. But then one day, he picked up his dad's 38 revolver and shot himself in the head. And that messed with me for a while. I, I would have expected that from a lot of people, but not from Stan. What's going on? And it really set me to evaluate where Stan was with the Lord. Did he love the church? No, he had kind of abandoned the church and was doing his own thing. And I got to see from the passage we looked at last week, 1 John 5, 1 through 5, loving the church is one of the things believers do. And then secondly, I began to evaluate, did he love God's commands? Well, there were a number of commands he was clearly disobeying on a daily basis. And he certainly didn't obey the command, thou shalt not murder. So it got me really thinking, you know, you've got to be thinking. You've got to be evaluating testimony. Is the testimony really genuine? Is it really authentic? Because there are pictures, there are plenty of testimonies, pictures of authenticity. There's plenty of testimony, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's genuine. We come to a passage this morning that wants to make the testimony plain, simple, genuine, authentic. You should have heard it as I read, but let me just look at the text again as we go back through. And notice... Eight times, God uses the word testify or testimony. He's 
he wants you to get a testimony this morning. And he wants you to get the right one. So don't miss it. Uh, the end of verse uh, 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. There are three, verse 7, that testify. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. You see, it kind of switched. There are people who testify. There are things that testify. But I want you to get not just the testimony of men. I want you to get the testimony of God. It's greater. And then he says, still in verse 9, for this is the testimony. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony. Um, Later on, whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony. And verse 11, and this is the testimony. Now, what does it take to make a good testimony? If you were in a court of law and you were just visiting or you were in the jury, when they bring a witness up to the stand, that witness says things. This is what I witnessed. This is what I believe. You're sitting there as the spectator having to determine, do I believe this or not? Is this testimony true or not? You listen, you evaluate, you say, man, it sounds pretty good. Tend to believe it. That witness goes down, a second witness comes up. Second witness from a different walk in life, different age, different gender. What did you witness? And this witness also says some of the same things, some of the same phrases. He said, whoa, they both seem to be saying the same thing. That tends to confirm what I believe, that the first one was right. Now it looks like it really is right. Then if you bring up a third, and that's the law of God as well as the law of our land, a thing is confirmed by two or more witnesses. So you've gotten two, and if you have a third, it's like, okay, this is where we've got to fall down. They all seem to be in agreement. First John 5, God says, I want to take you to another level. That's legalese. Two or more witnesses. But I want to take you to God's witness. If man's witness is great with two or more, God's witness is greater with two or more. So he wants us to see that. You, you leave this morning with irrefutable testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Redeemer. Our only hope for eternal life. God provides it here in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, if you've got King James, how many people are reading King James? Any? Okay, maybe two or three. It's, it's not an embarrassment. King James is a good translation. But I thought, do I spend time on this or not? You've confirmed for me I don't need to spend any time on it. If you have the King James, I'll just tell you, what's he talking about? If you have the King James, you have a whole other verse in your Bible than I read. It's like, what? And the reason is because translators are always going back to Greek manuscripts to determine what's the most authentic. Uh, you want to get a, a very old, ancient, original manuscript to translate from. Some quirky things happened in the 16th century. Erasmus put in the Latin Vulgate a phrase kind of on a dare, and it still stays in the King James. But all the modern translations have removed it 
because it's not in any of the ancient original manuscripts. It's only in a 16th century manuscript, okay? Here's the phrase you, I would have read, so I'll just, it's not controversial, so it doesn't bother me, but here's the phrase in verse 7, if you had to King James, for there are the, these who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Okay, we agree with that. There are three in heaven, Father, Word, Holy Spirit, and they are in agreement. That's what's added. Then they have everything else we've got too. So it's not a controversial phrase. It was just a controversy during translations. And um, all of, as far as I know, King James uh, and New King James is the only one still that hasn't fixed that. Every, every other translation I'm aware of has, has fixed that problem. Since you're not using a translation with it, let's just move on. Let's look not at uh, the problematic testimony. That's the translation. We've got a good translation Let's move forward to the threefold testimony that God mentions here through John. He says, this is he who came by water and blood. That's important. And he's going to say, who is it? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came by water and the blood. What does that mean? Uh, John Calvin said, well, I think that's the sacraments. Came by baptism, water, the blood of the Lord's Supper. Well, it's okay with the, the, the baptism because water is a good symbol for baptism, but blood really doesn't symbolize the Lord's Supper at other places. It, it, it just symbolizes part of the Lord's Supper. So most people have abandoned that view uh, and look for something else. What does it mean there's a testimony of water and blood? Uh, another view that's out there, and the one I jumped on is first, do you remember when Jesus was crucified, they stuck a spear in his side and what came out? Water and blood. And I thought, ah, there it is. It's, there's some testimony there in the water and the blood. And yet, the more I looked at it, that's not as satisfactory either. Because it says, Jesus came, verse 6, came by the water. Or he came through the water and the blood. It didn't say the water and blood came out of him. But he came by it somehow. Um, and it, so the language just doesn't seem to make us think it's the same context. So those are some things that are out there. What do I think it is? I think that the scripture indicates that this water and this blood, the water is symbol of baptism and the blood is a symbol of the crucifixion. So there's a testimony that we're supposed to get in Christ's baptism and there's a testimony we are to get in his crucifixion that is irrefutable. That enables us to see Jesus is the Son of God, no other, and the only one able to grant us eternal life. So let's look at, first of all, the, the symbol of the water. Christ came through uh, baptism. He came through the testimony of water. Look at the baptism of Christ in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Matthew 3. I'm going to take you to all four Gospels eventually, but let's, let's look here first. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John. Well, this is John the Baptist. To be baptized by him. John would have prevented him they tried to prevent him. This is what John said, saying, I need to be baptized by you. 
And do you come to me? Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now let's think about this baptism. Let's unpack it just a little bit so that you understand what's going on here. Uh, when he says, John says, you know, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you because I do a baptism of repentance and you haven't sinned. And they both got that. But Jesus says, I understand what you're saying, John the Baptist, but um, let's go along with this, okay, right now. And the reason is, because I know you've never done it this way before, but I want you to do it so that we can fulfill, you and me, we can fulfill all righteousness. Literally, the phrase fulfill all righteousness is literally according to the law. Let's do this because it is according to the law. There's, there's some righteous requirement that you and I need to fulfill. And it puts this in a category different from your other baptisms. Now, once you understand that's the language, you have to ask yourself, well, okay, well, I get that. What's the law? What law are they fulfilling that changed John the Baptist's mind? Sure, step on up. Let me baptize you. The law he was fulfilling and would have been familiar to him to get it like that but something he hadn't done was the law of ordaining priest. You, to be a priest, you needed to be over 25. That was the minimum. Most were around 30. John had just been ordained a priest. You have to be ordained a priest by a priest. His dad was a priest. Ordained him as a priest. Jesus, coming six months later comes to the place where the very next chapter he's going into the wilderness and beginning his ministry as our priest. So that's the history. The law is found in Numbers 8. Look at me to Numbers 8. Beginning at verse 5. This is, if you've got some sort of title in your, your uh, version of the Bible... It will say something like cleansing the Levites or setting apart the priest. Numbers 8 verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. And let them go with razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. And then let them take a bull from the herd and its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. And you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. So you get the priest ready. Have them shave. Get them cleansed. Of course, Christ doesn't have to be cleansed from sin. So that part's not applicable to him, but he still needs to be priest. Then you get the whole congregation together, and here's the ordination service. Verse 10. 
When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. This is the setting apart symbol or move, uh, motion. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord. Aaron was a priest. Offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, and they may do so that they may do the service of the Lord. It's another way of saying so that they can be ordained as a priest. To now be in the tabernacle and be before the people as the one offering their sacrifices to the Lord. Verse 15. And after that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting. So they've been ordained. Now they can go in, serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. And then verse 19. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that they may be no more plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. So those, that's the law. Those are the stipulations for ordaining priests. Aaronic priesthood, sons of Aaron could be priest. Aaron, the father priest, was to ordain his sons to be priest. Jesus steps on the scene and says, John, you just went through that. That's what I need to go through. I need you to set me apart as a priest. How is that done? It's done by the sprinkling of water and the laying on of hands and, and the, the awesomeness of Jesus' baptism was not only was the water sprinkled, but it's like the hand from God comes down then to lay on Christ, the person of the Spirit, and set Him apart and declare to the people of God, Behold, before you is my Son. The Son of God. To be your priest now and forever. That's what was happening. Heaven opens up. It's, you know, we don't see that. No one sees heaven open. And the literal voice of God speaking. And what is he doing? He's testifying. He's giving a testimony. He's witnessing. This is my son, set apart to be your priest. And Christ comes and begins his earthly ministry as our priest. Now, that's the way I've interpreted it. You might say, hey, well, I'm not sure I've ever heard that. Let me show you how Christ interprets it. Because this has sealed the deal for me. Look at Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Flipping my pages and messing them up. There we go. Mark chapter 11. Verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. So this is Jesus and his cohorts. And he was talking in the temple. And the chief priest and... The scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, 
By what authority are you doing these things? I didn't read, but if you you look down at verse 15, Jesus cleanses the temple, okay? So you know that whole story. Pretty aggressive actions by Jesus. Walks into the temple, turns over tables, runs people out, cleanses the temple. He comes back into the temple. The scribes and Pharisees who were there, they say, Now, we understand what you just did. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? So let's make it clear. Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the one question. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Why the question? The question is not Jesus, what did you do? Everybody knows what he did. He cleansed the temple. The question is, who gave you the authority? The only people with authority to cleanse the temple are priests. Goes all the way back to Aaron. They go into the tent. They go into the temple. They're in charge. The question is, do you have the authority of a priest? Because if you don't, you just broke the law. And we want to kick you out. Who gave you the authority? Jesus says, fair question. Let me ask you a question. You answer me and I'll answer you. Whose baptism was John's? Who gave John authority? Heaven or man? Why would he ask that? Because a priest ordains a priest. And if John was a priest, if he had authority, then Jesus now has authority. Because John's baptism, what was the baptism of John? It was to set Christ apart as a priest. They knew they couldn't say John's baptism was men because everybody knew John was a priest. And a prophet divinely given to those people. It'd be like me asking the question, if I see you walking through the church with a gun, you know, on your holster, you're walking through, and I say, I don't need to ask you, what are you doing? I already know what you're doing. We are an open carry state. You can carry guns openly most places, but not in churches. In churches, you have somebody has to give you authority. So my question to you is not, what are you doing? You're carrying a gun in the church. The question is, who gave you the authority? You see, the civil government can give you the authority. They can give authority to policemen to open carry and come into churches. The elders of the church can give authority in the church they rule over. And you have authority. So you have two options. Either the civil government, I'm a policeman, or the elders have given me authority. If you don't have authority, that's the question. There's the door. I'm going to kick you out, right? Because you don't have authority. The question is authority. It's not what. 
It's who gave authority. Jesus is interpreting his baptism as the moment he was set apart by the authority of John the Baptist to be priest. To cleanse the temple. To begin making atonement for the people of God. Um, Jesus brings up the baptism as proof. God uses the baptism as testimony. Going back to 1 John, this threefold testimony, the testimony at Christ's baptism. This is my son. Through the water, when the water that John the Baptist took and sprinkled upon Christ, according to the law of Numbers 8, there is no other law. For him to fulfill. This is the only thing left for him to begin his ministry. You had to be about 25 years old. The scripture tells us Jesus was about 30 years old. Let, let me just show you all four places real quick. You saw it in Matthew. Look at Mark chapter 1. Just see this testimony over and over. Mark 1 verse 9 through 11. So you got four options. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospels telling the story of Jesus. In Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son with whom... I am well pleased. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Luke says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With, who, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. And then the genealogy of Luke uh, there begins ending up in verse 38 son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Again, that's the testimony. That Jesus was no less than the son of God. And then one other place, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 32. says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. And I myself did not know, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Through the water, all four places the baptism of Christ is described plus the one Jesus uses before the scribes and Pharisees. All four places reveal 
Through the water, Christ is none other than God's Son, with whom God is pleased, with whom God is now placing into ministry as priest to make atonement. Other scriptures declare him to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek for our atonement. We know that theology, but I want you to see it came through the water. It came through the water. And this is one of those places, too, it's like to, uh, to scream immediacy. It's like, don't miss the message. Baptisms are happening. They're sprinkling people. Jesus comes. He says, John, I need you to do this because it's righteous. It's something according to the law. John says, oh, okay, I get it. He does it. God's hand in the Spirit, like it's laying on him bodily, the Scripture says. He says, as soon as this water was placed upon Christ, it says, immediately, oh, immediately, don't miss it. This happened. It's huge. It's big. Heaven's open. God speaks, lays his hand upon his son, and says, pay attention. Don't miss this. This is my testimony, my witness, that this one is the son of God. Now, second, God's testimony at the crucifixion. Look at Matthew 27, very similar. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 50. Matthew 27, verse 50 and following. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Wrong chapter, I'm sorry. I was in 26. Now I'm in 27. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's another one of these, stop and catch something. You might have missed. And it was torn in two from top to bottom. Nobody could do that. It was too tall. Unless you were God and you were already in heaven, you can start at the top if you want to. And bring it down. It's like this is, this is significant. Don't, don't miss God's stuff. He says, behold, the, when Christ gave up his spirit on the cross. Said it's finished. Behold, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Which is the symbol that Christ has now stepped in. What was the temple curtain for? To separate the common area from the holy of holies. The curtain is torn. Christ steps in. To the Holy of Holies as our priest, as our atonement, to meet with God the Father on our behalf. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That coming up out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion this is a Roman soldier at the crucifixion. And those who were with him. So he's the one that's going to be the spokesman. But it's the centurion and others with him. Keeping watch over Jesus. When they saw the earthquake. And what took place. They were filled with awe. And said. 
truly, this was the Son of God. Again, the testimony through water and now through the blood of Christ. As his blood was being pouring out of him. And when the last drop hit the ground, the last drop of life. When that took place, someone perhaps, I don't know how, comes running. The temple curtain has been torn from top to bottom. And the earth begins to tremble and shake. And of course, you, you, other passages, the whole world goes dark. And there's an earthquake. There's the shaking. There's the rumbling. There's rock splitting. People coming up out of graves. And even a non-Christian Roman soldier has sense enough to acknowledge the testimony. This is the Son of God. It's irrefutable. It's never happened. It happened through the water, and it's happening now through the blood. That's John's point back in 1 John 5. I'm going to get you there. Um, Christ died for our redemption, and there's no lack of evidence. So let's go back. Well, 1 John, you remember, this is the easy one, so I'm not spending time on it. God's testimony through the Holy Spirit. Look at John 15, 26. We know who the Holy Spirit is, not symbolical language. So, uh, like I said, that's, that's easy to interpret. John 15, 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. The Holy Spirit comes and He's today and He bears witness about Christ. Well, that's been His ministry all along. And I'm not going to take the time to go back and show you the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think you're familiar enough with it. When uh, Jesus was born, when He took on flesh, the Spirit shows up and tells Joseph and Mary, you're about to be pregnant, Mary. He said, well, how can that happen? I'm a virgin. Holy Spirit, it's going to come upon you. And the Spirit gives her the seed of God. And Joseph and Mary knew, had a witness from the Holy Spirit. So many of the healings, all through Scripture says, and the Spirit of God fell upon them. And they were healed. And they were changed. And the Spirit continues to witness Jesus' work over and over. And He still does it today. There's no doubt about it. Romans chapter 8, it says, and that this Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Descendants from Christ who is the Son of God. Um, so, back in 1 John. I think we get that. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Three witnesses. There's the witness of the water. There's the witness of the blood. And there's the witness of the Spirit. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, testimony of God is greater. There's two or more. And there 
infinite, eternal. They're perfect in, in the Godhead. Uh, the testimony of God is greater. And this is the testimony that God, that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Uh, whoever does not believe has made him a liar. Now, think about the three witnesses. If you have a witness come before you, listen, I'm not sure I'll go along with that. Let me wait. Verdict's still out. Second witness comes, and second witness doesn't quite say the same thing. Say, yeah, I thought so. Not sure I'm getting the right story. And then a third witness. What do you determine? Liar. Somebody's lying. I don't have truth. And that's what God is saying. If I give you three witnesses, and the three witnesses agree, and you don't believe it, you're saying God's a liar, because the three witnesses are God's testimony. You really want to go there? Even a Roman centurion wouldn't go there. These are irrefutable. It's never happened to anyone but Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God. There's, he's the only mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus. And I've given you three evidences that that is who he is. If you don't believe it, you make God, you're saying God's a, a liar. Because he's not, you're not believing in his testimony concerning his son. Well, let's get to... You know, just the practical aspects of that. Verses 11 uh, and 12. And this is the testimony that God has given us. Eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Um, do you have a Son? S-O-N. The Son of God. Because if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. You say, well, who's the Son? I just told you. God just told you. He gave you three irrefutable testimonies that the Son of God is Jesus. That Jesus has been appointed for your salvation, for your atonement from God the Spirit testifies about Him always. Do you have the Son? Now, I want you to feel that a minute. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I know it's awkward when I ask you to do stuff. But just turn to your neighbor and ask the question, do you have the Son? And then turn back. Turn to your neighbor and say, do you have the Son? All right. Now stop and think about it and feel it. You perhaps just uttered the most eternally significant phrase ever out of your mouth. You just ask your neighbor, your spouse, your child, your stranger, do they have eternal life? The only way they can possibly have it is by having the Son. Do you 
have the Son. God forbid that you would go out of here and not have the Son. God so loved the world that He gave you His Son. If you choose not to believe that, undeniable affection of God for you, you are calling Him a liar and have not life. Do you have the Son? If you don't have the Son of God, if it's not a possession of yours in your soul, you don't have life. John 1.12 says, As many as receive Him, the Son, to them He gives the right to be children of God. You have the right to eternal life, to live with God forever. But you must receive the Son. You can go through the motions of church. You can go through the motions of being a witness and not have the Son. God says, this is the evidence of the Son. And he who has the Son has life. I want you to have that. If you're still confused, friends, see me at your convenience. Be my greatest joy to talk to you more about how you can have the Son. If you want to receive the Son right now, I want to pray, and you have the opportunity to pray with me, and you can receive the Son. You may be a young child. This is the first time you ever thought about it. And you need the Son. You may be an old person. Nobody ever made it this plain. You never knew it was God's testimony. You just thought it was some preacher. This is your opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, it is earth shaking. It is rock splitting. It is sky and heavens being rent. It's earth shattering like nothing else when our God thunders from heaven that this is my son. Pay attention. Father, it's not about me manipulating anyone. It's about your spirit. Please convict those without the son here in this room. And let them right now cry in their heart, Jesus, I receive you. I receive you with the promise that whoever receives the Son has life eternal. Father, let us no longer be in doubt or lack assurance, but let us know our life is secure in you. Whether we're hit by a truck or are afflicted with cancer, or whatever, that we have eternal life because we have the Son.
This is our desire for every child, man, woman, here. Lord, let us be your testimony to the Son of the living God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.